Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janita Cristofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Today's guest is Joe DiNardo, CEO, director, and founder of Council Financial, a commercial lender for law firms. After almost three decades in the field of law, Joe recently released his first book, A Letter to My Wife, which follows his journey with his late wife, Marcia, from cancer diagnosis through her death in March of 2015. His practice of mindfulness is explored throughout this heartfelt dedication and serves as the foundation for recommendations on coping with loss and healing. His story, which includes both practical advice and profound wisdom, is a real-life example of how powerful and guiding meditation can be during life's painful and challenging chapters. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You know, after two decades of living on the West Coast, it's really rare that I get to talk with another East Coast Italian. And from <laughs> what you describe in your from what you describe in your book, I'm pretty sure we might be related. <laughs> that's possible. I guess <laughs> I didn't know you were from the East Coast, so that that's good to know. <laughs> well, Joe, you know, I had a chance last week to read your book, and it's an amazingly beautiful tribute not only to your wife, Marcia, and what she meant to you, but also to you and your ability to stay present with the most intense heartbreak. So thank you for bringing your story to all of us out there who are dealing with our own losses and trying to figure out how to navigate this really tender time. So thank you for your work. No, thank you for saying so. I'm not a writer. I didn't consider myself a writer. I just felt that the letter, I wrote the letter, an actual letter, just prior to my wife's death. I had started it. And when she passed away on uh, March uh, 3rd of 2015, at her funeral, I decided that rather than have nieces or nephews, you know, say different little things or have other people do a reading, that I felt the best way to honor her would be to read her the letter. And then following that, I, I was quite unexpectedly moved by how many people at the funeral, after the funeral, days after, weeks after, were calling and asking me if they could get a copy of the letter. They were so moved by it and felt it was so inspirational. So I called uh, around and talked to a woman who's an author, uh, Amy Koppelman, and asked her what I should do, what she thought. And about writing a book, she said, well, I'm really not in a position to help you. Uh, talked to a friend of mine, Yona McDonough, and she became my quote-unquote semi-editor. Really, she was a coach and said, okay, now I want you to do this. And we put together this very little book. And it was going to be, and it was only in my intention, to give it to, you know, 50 or so friends and family that had asked about it. 
but then of course once the book gets out there other people see it or they share it or whatever you know it became a, it, it took on a life of its own well and i will definitely be linking to where people can find your book and our show notes and the amazing response that you received, not just to the letter, but also to your book, seems to speak so much to how eager people are to know about what happens in a situation in a family when someone is diagnosed with an illness and ends up dying. Like, what's actually happening? And one of the things I was struck by in your initial letter was the concept of being okay. And you speak a lot of how your daughter's going to be okay and other family members are going to be okay. And then you pause and you say, but I'm not okay. And I was just curious if you could talk a little more about that idea of being okay or not being okay. For me, the definition of being okay included having Marsha there and home with us. She was a wonderful, wonderful cook. And I enjoyed so much coming home from work and pouring myself a glass of wine and sitting on the couch in the kitchen and just watching her dance around the kitchen, making these wonderful, healthy meals in a very Italian way. And I just loved all of that, amongst other things. So not having her ever again to do that, not having her ever in my arms again, not ever being able to go out with her uh, to dinner and just talk alone for hours, I'll never be okay without that. But I'm fine. I'll be fine. So it's just a matter of definition. By fine, I mean this. I believe that I'm working on and have been you know, fairly successful in dealing with the grief and the loss of my wife. And it's a very odd experience to actually have someone in your life every day and then suddenly they're not in your life at all. It's painful, especially when you can't do anything about it. You can't bring that person back and you want them to be back. This is an experience that everybody has at the loss of a parent, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. When a loss of someone that you have loved dearly, the the cost of that love is the grief that you suffer when they're gone. And it is inevitable. It's nothing to feel ashamed of. Um, but how we deal with that grief can be either skillful or unskillful. Unskillful would be we don't like the grief, we don't like the way it makes us feel, it makes us feel sad and lonely and desperate, and so we push those feelings down, we try to bury those feelings, we try to distract ourselves from those feelings as much as we can, we watch television, we smoke cigarettes, we you know, drink alcohol, uh, we constantly get on the phone and talk to our friends, whatever it might be, to avoid having to sit quietly with this grief because it's an unpleasant feeling. Skillfully is more in the line of being mindful. And by that I mean being able to take some time every day where you quiet yourself and then allow yourself the opportunity to let the grief just be there in all of its force and fury, just to be there without reacting to it either positively or negatively. And over the course of time, I think the power that the grief has over you begins to dissipate. It doesn't mean the grief goes away or that you suddenly forget your loved one. I don't think that ever happens. But you begin to adjust to the pain, and you begin to be able to incorporate the pain 
into who you are and how you see the world. One of the things I come across a lot is that urge to sit with the grief, as you talked about, the skillfully being present as possible with your grief. So there's like a an urge to do that and then a tremendous fear that if I sit down and if I really open the door to these feelings, I'm going to fall into the abyss and it's never going to end. Like I'm never going to come back out of that. Were there things that you had in place prior to Marcia's diagnosis or things that you learned along the way to deal with that? Is this ever going to end? Let me let me answer your first question first. I think it would not be a good idea to simply listen to me on this podcast and then say, oh, wow, I am in such distress. I'm going to sit here and do this. I think you need to talk to somebody or read some books and get a better sense of what it means to be mindful and get an opportunity to learn some of the technique of being mindful. There's a structure there that we're, we're not just saying, you know, sit down and open, you know, rip off right. the Band-Aid and sit there. Like there's some things you can be doing to keep yes, some I, containment around that. I think it would be a mistake to just do that, to rip off the Band-Aid and just unskillfully, not knowing what you're doing, saying, oh, I heard this. I'm just going to sit here now and, and it could, in fact, not be a good experience. So mindfulness training you can almost find anywhere from Life Magazine to books on the bookshelf. They're all over the place. But very simply, if a person sits quietly, at least for just a few moments, relaxes, physically relaxes their body, actually goes through their body and takes an opportunity to relax their shoulders and their jaw and the tension in their back and hips and legs, just get the body quiet for a moment. And then bring their attention to the experience that they feel when they breathe in and when they breathe out. Why do we do that? Well, if you think about it, being in the moment, what does that mean? You are so intimately connected to your breath. You cannot be if you don't have your breath. So your breath will always be with you. Your breath isn't good or bad. It's just an experience that is occurring. By training the mind to stay focused, you begin to build up some level of concentration, which could then take you into the opportunity to start examining uh, objectively your grief. This is a blueprint for how to do it. There are other methods of meditation or mind training, you know, that may work. I don't. I, I'm not prepared to to offer any instruction on that, but on mindfulness, training the mind. Let me ask you a question, Janet. Can you imagine what people would think of you if you were able to attach a speaker to the top of your head and as you walked into your work or down the street, every single thought you had in your mind would be broadcast? Well, it's terrifying to me and to everyone else. Right, Uh, because our minds are constantly racing either about something in the future that hasn't happened or about something in the past over which you have no control over anymore, and we're making judgments about things that we see and people we like and we don't like and on and on and on, and we're self-criticizing and judging ourselves. It's endless. So mindfulness training is designed to slow that process down. By slowing that process down, it seems that you are really able to stay connected to 
what was going on for you and also what was going on for your wife. In the part of your book, as Marsha's illness becomes more severe and kind of running out of treatment options, it seemed like for Marsha, it was really important for her to stay in a place of hope. And you talked about how mindfulness really helped you stay present to what she needed from you. And I'm curious, where did you go when you did need to talk about those more realistic pieces? Well, we, uh, our nanny, Erin, and one of Marsha's closest friends was very helpful because she was very, very close to Marsha. And, of course, Marsha said a lot of things to Erin in terms of planning, like what to do with her jewelry, what to do with her clothing, you know, what she wanted Juliana, our daughter, to have and to be set aside in the event something happened to her. So she wasn't totally unwilling to discuss it, but I think with me, she did not want to overburden me with the impending and the inevitable that was obviously occurring, which doesn't mean that we didn't talk about it quietly from time to time. We did. But I learned very quickly that in caregiving, you really need to come with an open heart and not some preconceived idea of what you think the patient should do or talk about. You need to listen more than anything. When I say listen, though, I don't mean just with your ears. I mean, listen with your heart uh, and your entire person and try to sense, as you said, what does this person need from me? What does the person need me to say right now? Now, early on in this process, Marsha and I agreed never to lie to one another. So she knew that if she asked me a question, that I was going to tell her the truth. As time went by, and it became more and more clear to both of us what was happening and what was going to be happening, as I heard her, she needed me to be strong for her and to allow her the hope that something good might happen. On the other hand, until she asked me exactly what I thought was going to happen, the reason she didn't ask me is because she knew that I would tell her the truth. And about four days before she actually passed away, but she turned to me. We were alone in the bedroom. I was kneeling down on the floor so I could be sort of at her same level. She sat up in the bed, which was unusual because she could barely move. And she looked at me and she said, do you think I'm going to get better? And I said to her, honey, you know, we promised not to lie to each other. She didn't say anything. I said, I don't think you're going to get better. And she just sort of glazed out the window and looking out the window for a second or two, turned back to me and said, oh, and fell back down, you know, semi-state of just whatever, eyes closed. I knew she was suffering a lot physically. And that was a very powerful, powerful moment for me. And I felt, you know, unusual because as sad as it was, I felt I handled it right. Uh, and I think I handled it right because I had been listening all along for the two years that she was under treatment for what she needed from me. And at that moment, she needed the truth. And I was able to give it to her, you know, in a very, I think, very loving way without any judgment attached to it at all. And two days later, uh, she passed away. And so to be so in tune with her and her needs and her process and her being in tune seems like with you as well. In that moment, such a pivotal time to know this is the right thing to do. It was a pivotal. That's a good way to say it, a pivotal time. I, I have spent 40 years in meditation practice. Uh, I started back in 1976. So I felt my practice was strong, and it really gave me 
an opportunity to put it into practice with this going on. The fact that the diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer, you know, I don't want to say that it's a, a death warrant. It's not, but it's certainly something close to that. And to and to work on myself, it was a unique, and I hope your listeners don't take this the wrong way, it was a unique opportunity to test my practice and my love for my wife. And they talk in spiritual practice about, you know, unconditional love. And that unconditional love is when you love someone, but you don't expect anything in return. You don't you don't demand of them a quid pro quo. You love them in almost a pure sense. When I first heard the diagnosis in the doctor's office, my wife sitting next to me, of stage four pancreatic cancer, I was completely overwhelmed with a feeling of unconditional love for my wife. I knew I was going to be there every moment of her uh, treatments, doctors, whatever it took, and to be there for her, no matter what she said, did, or how she felt towards me. And then the most powerful part of the whole process was the evening that she passed away. It was, you know, I got to hold her hand and watch her breathe, talking to her, and then all of a sudden she transitioned away. Did you feel something in you shift at that moment as well? I did. It was a shift because the experience of being with someone who then transitions out of this life is just it's overwhelming. There's nothing I had ever experienced anything like that before. And so for me to be able to be there and to be in the moment and to be present for her even in that last moment, I just felt the whole thing was just made so powerful by that. Hard to describe. Yeah, it seems to defy being put into words and especially so with how fully embodied you were in that experience, which is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. You just passed the two-year anniversary of Marsha's death on March 3rd, and I was curious if you noticed anything that was different about year two versus year one. It, it's just like an evolutionary process or a de-evolutionary process. It changes with time. I mean, time doesn't heal the wound, but it gives you a chance to adjust to the wound. You know, having her loss is simply with me now, okay, but it's not inhibiting me. I actually feel as much as I want her back, I would take her back in a heartbeat today. But knowing that she's not coming back uh, and having to sit with that and to recognize that and to absorb that feeling, knowing that she's not coming back ever, has made me a more compassionate person, a more loving person, has made me a more humble person. I mean, there's nothing more humbling than to watch death right the palm of your hand. You wrote in your book that the greatest lesson of all the lessons you learned through this process is humility with gratitude. Is that close to what you're talking about here? Yes, the humility for sure. And the gratitude comes in the sense that this is a very difficult thing, but I'm grateful that I was able to be there for it. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. I mean, some some people, I guess, you know, when they when they see somebody suffering and there's going to go, 
you know, they sort of withdraw or, or distract themselves or, or don't get involved or, or whatever it might be. I, I'm not saying it in a critical way. I'm just saying, but for me, because I chose to be as mindful and to be as open and to be in the moment each and every time I could, as much as I could be with her, it just made the whole experience something that I'm very grateful for, for having been able to participate in it. It seems to come back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode, that idea around how can I be fine and it's still not okay. And I think that's what I hear so many people sit in that place of, you know, I am okay in my life, but I'm not okay with the fact that this person is not a part of my life. Yeah, I mean, how could you possibly say that I'm okay that, that such and such a person is no longer part of my life? I think one of my biggest takeaways from your book in its entirety is one of the terms I've always struggled with in the grief world is acceptance. And I, I think it gets presented as accepting the death. And instead, what I take from your book is it's it's more a process of accepting yourself in your grief and has nothing to do with accepting the reality. I mean, you're accepting the reality that that person is no longer alive, but not accepting the death necessarily. And so I appreciated that ability to talk about acceptance in that way. Right. There was a, there was I was very thankful to be able to work with her that way. But so I, I, what I want to 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 offer is this mindfulness practice and creating for yourself a, a, a better opportunity to deal with all of these strong feelings of grief and loss and sorrow. Uh, mindfulness training can be very helpful. It's not a religious training of any kind. It's simply a technique that can be used and incorporated into your everyday life, uh, but it takes a commitment as you talk about how important it is to have a commitment to that practice, it seems as though it really parallels both the strength and the dedication and the commitment that you had towards Marcia and towards caring for her throughout her entire illness up until the time of her death. Again, I, I just feel so humbled by having had the unfortunate opportunity to put my practice into play and to to be there for my wife. I mean, it's not something that anybody wants to do, but I'm saying in life, you don't have any choice about what's coming your way. If you think everything is great today and therefore it's going to be great forever, <laughs> just sit back for a while. It's just not the way life works. Life is constantly in motion. It's changing all of the time. And our, our desire to what attach ourselves to all the good feelings and to get rid of all the bad feelings only makes the struggle difficult because you cannot hang on to something that's always moving and changing. Um, and that's what the practice is. It's, it gives you an opportunity for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or a half an hour every day to be in a position of just letting things flow and being in the flow with it. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for your book, for sharing your love of Marsha with us, and for being here today to talk with our audience. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for, for allowing me to do it. It's, it's really been a very nice opportunity, and I appreciate it as well. 
And for listeners out there, I will link to Joe's book in our show notes, so please check it out. And if you would like to listen to any of our past episodes, you can find us on our website, dougy.org. And stay tuned because we are looking at changing our name, and that should be coming pretty soon. So just be aware it's coming your way. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.